Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 216. My name is Ariel Ben-Lamin Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King, Lord, we're delighted to be able to count the Omer from Passover to Pentecost as we work our way from the season of enjoying our freedom in Messiah to the season of of enjoying being filled with the spirit of Messiah. From Passover to Pentecost, it's all about you, Yeshua, and we glory in that, we revel in that, we delight in celebrating who you are and what you're doing for us as a people. Thank you, Lord, for preserving these calendar dates for us, these special times, which are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. They reveal the Messiah, his person, his work, his nature, his redemption, his salvation, his grace being poured out to us, especially as we are with an eye, with a view towards Shavuot coming up soon, Pentecost, we're now going to celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which also conveniently commemorates the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, and thank you for your word, because we know in concert, the two of those together help us to grow into the person that we are created to be, and which is patterned after, of course, the lifestyle of Messiah Yeshua. So thank you, Lord, for all of these wonderful truths. Bless us as we continue to work our way through the studies that we have prepared for us tonight. Give us our ears to hear and eyes to see, and give us the desire to implement the truths so we can put our uh, put feet to our faith and put to practice the things that we believe so we can touch a dying world around us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you again for joining me during these live internet studies. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. This is an hour and a half long study broken into two segments. The first segment is, as you can see on your screen, on your screen entitled Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. The second study, which is, begins after an hour, which I hope you can stick around for the entire study, is a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. So let's jump into Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. As we look at my schedule that you can see on the screen right now, we are working through this topical index of subjects and we worked our way through topics one through four and we're in now topic five book of daniel the 70 weeks of daniel and we're drawing this topical section to a close we're going to be dealing with summary and conclusions tonight we're going to be looking directly at the 70th week of daniel not just the overview of the 70 weeks but now we're zeroing in on that last final seven year stretch that according to the futurist perspective is still yet future right so as we're looking at this topic we're actually building momentum as we work our way towards actually the book of revelation you can see down on my screen here on the topical list i've updated this just day or two ago to include not only a new topic but just remind you that topic 14 and 15 is the book of revelation study and this really is a book of revelation study it's an eschatology study yes but the main thrust of where i'm going is we're working away towards the study on the book of revelation which is going to take a lot longer when we finally get to it because we're going to go somewhat verse by verse somewhat topic by topic when we get to the book of revelation but until we get there we're at topic five with book of daniel and i added a new topic to the list topic six excursus antichrist according to robert van campen recall from earlier studies that i introduced this late christian author he just passed away within the last decade 
and his name was uh, Robert Van Campen, and he wrote a really, really helpful book on eschatology known as The Sign, and it's available at Amazon. I'll put a little screenshot on the on the in the post-production for you so you can see what i'm talking about what the book looks like the cover looks like etc great book i don't agree with everything that the author uh presents but i found that enough of the foundational truths to be solidly grounded in scripture from my perspective that i can uh endorse the book and i've i've had the book for several years i've gone through it a few different times and so basically what i'm going to do eventually Probably not next week and probably not even the week after because it'll take maybe this week, next week, and possibly the third week to finish up the summary and conclusion of the 70 weeks of Daniel. But what we'll do is I'll turn and we'll pull a a portion of some of one of the chapters out of his book, The Sign, and it's uh, dealing with the Antichrist specifically. So just thought I'd make you aware of that. All right, I'm going to try a different format tonight. So I hope you guys can... Uh, run with me. I'm going to start using a PowerPoint slide to see if this will help me stay on topic, stop and uh, pr uh, kind of prevent me from rambling so much and chasing rabbit ho rabbit holes and rabbis, and see if this will also make it easier for you guys to understand where I'm going since a lot of what I've I'm going to say is already pre uh, put together in you know earlier this week. So I put together this PowerPoint. And we're just going to work our way through these particular slides. So the first thing I want to do before we jump into the study itself, last week we left off. Let me turn over to, here we go. Last week we left off with Pastor David Guzik's study online for the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And at the very end of his study, they had, he had this little kind of an excursus itself. Uh, sec footnoted section at the very bottom of his study called the 70 weeks of Daniel is understood by Sir Robert Anderson in the coming prince. And I said, I would look at that very, very briefly. I'm not going to take very long on this. Really. I'm just going to read it verbatim because we've already studied most of this. And then I'll jump right into my own uh, PowerPoint slide. But he basically talks about how that Daniel 9, 24 to 25 talks about the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming Messiah. And the point for Guzik bringing this to our attention is because, as you probably know, or you may not know, a good chunk or portion or segment of Judaism that rejects Jesus as the candidate for Messiah does so based on their differing understanding of the timing of Daniel's prophecies. Christianity for the most part, even if you factor in the contrasting perspectives of futurist versus preterist positions, nevertheless, both groups represent a Christian position when it comes to Jesus is the one that Daniel was prophesying about. There are some minority positions within Christianity that say, no, this isn't Jesus, kind of a oxymoron, uh, moronic position myself, kind of uh, how can you say contradiction right paradox how can you say you're a christian group but yet you reject jesus in daniel oh well anyway it happens but guzik's purpose for bringing this little chart down at the very very bottom is so that he can understand where the timing is centered where the foundational aspects of it and sir robert anderson is kind of the one who provided the seminal work that has recently well, i shouldn't say recently but it has since been verified checked and updated and modified and, and corrected in some areas by other individuals 
so as to make make it a little bit more accurate but the gist of it still stands it says withstood the steps of time but he shows out that the seven plus 62 weeks equals 69 groups of seven years thus we end up with 483 years anderson understood a prophetic year as 360 days which is based on ancient history etc etc as well as based on scriptural analysis therefore there's an x amount of days and if we then chart this and calculate it against ancient history and the bible using art the degree of the decree of arctic xerxes and you can see the dates on your screen there then we end up having a date that allows us to pinpoint the 483 years as culminating in yeshua himself hitting the scene in the first century starting his ministry uh, during a certain time frame anderson believed that uh, Jesus celebrated four Passovers during his ministry, et cetera, et cetera. We see some of this. I'm just kind of quickly uh, alerting you to it. I'm not going to read through all of it since it's not it's not particularly foundational to what I'm teaching here in the book uh, in this eschatological study. Although I do believe that that Sir Robert Anderson's calculations were very very helpful. I may have some slight differences in the way I understand the calculations go, but the, the overall gist is the same. In other words, we do, whether or not the calculation is 100% accurate or not, we accept that Yeshua came according to scripture, according to prophecy, and he performed his father's works and commandments according to what timetable God knew should happen. And I believe that Daniel was speaking of that. So I am on board with that. So I want you guys not to misunderstand. I want you to know that from my understanding as a Christian, as a Messianic Jewish man, I accept that Yeshua is the one that Daniel spoke of. Con this is contrary to Rabbinic Judaism, National Israel's position today that says this is not Jesus because the calculations are all Christian miscalculations, etc., etc. So therefore, the key figures are wrong, blah, blah, blah. And so you can see this on your screen. There's some adjustments, etc., etc., this is the more popular position that's held by many in Christianity, and you're going to hear this taught and pushed across many, many pulpits uh, the world over. So I thought I'd make you aware of that in case you were, you want to know where uh, some of that information comes from. Pastor Guzik provides that at the very bottom of his commentary, okay? All right. Having said that, let's jump back over into my own commentary in my own slideshow presentation so let's jump from the topical presentation and jump into just real quick as well as we're forming our summary and conclusions to what we've been talking about it's necessary for me one more time and i'm gonna i say one more time but in reality i'm gonna do it more off uh, a few more times down the road to let you uh, become aware make you aware of the two somewhat almost polar polar opposite positions on end time prophecy eschatology there's the preterist view which is the position that i do not subscribe to remember preterism comes in two flavors it comes in a what we might call a full or hyper preterism more uh, very strict preterism which is borderline heresy and in fact probably is heretical at least it's been labeled heretical from the other version of preterism but the full preterist slash hyper preterism has serious flaws in scriptural uh interpretation the other version of preterism which is a little bit more liberal a little bit more and it's certainly more popular within christianity is known as partial preterism or it also goes by the name of orthodox preterism so we when we speak of preterism 
from a non-preteristic perspective, we non-preterists usually simply just say preterists. We don't usually have to define full versus partial, but the preterist view, this approach holds that the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus and his Roman army overran Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple. So in this scheme, the book of Revelation does not deal with the future. And as I mentioned, one of the problems with this view is that Revelation claims to be prophecy, right? We know that from reading Revelation. Further, multiple events described in the book of Revelation bear no resemblance to the events of AD 70. For example, a third of mankind was not killed as predicted in Revelation 9, 18, etc., etc. So moreover, substantive evidence indicates that the book of Revelation was written about AD 95, long after the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, that last little sentence there at the bottom, where it talks about the date of the writing of Revelation, that is actually the central point that holds, that undergirds the preterist perspective that says that everything took place before 70 AD or up to 70 AD. And once the temple was destroyed, Judaism was destroyed, the Jewish people were set aside and a new covenant began with the Gentile people and the birth of the church and the establishment of Christianity. And so preterism, even in its partial versions, forms what we might know as one of the more dangerous versions of replacement theology, supersessionism, where the church replaces Israel as the people of God, the New Testament replaces the Old Testament as the scriptures of God, and Christianity replaces Judaism as the religion of God and religion that's prominent in God's plans, etc., etc. So, preterism has some beliefs that I, as a Messianic Jew, simply cannot endorse. I just, I absolutely cannot endorse them. Not only because they run counter to my own personal understanding of Scripture, right, covenant theology versus remnant theology, et cetera, et cetera, but the values, I'm sorry, not the values, the ideals and belief system that, that preterism supports and champions seem to run contrary to what I find in the Bible itself. So that's the preterist view. And if indeed the date of Revelation can be absolutely established to be in the 90s, well then preterism, whether, whether you're full or partial, preterism as a system crumbles because preterism cannot stand if something existed after 70 AD that resembles Judaism or Christianity or something like that. I'm sorry, Judaism or Torah observance, et cetera, et cetera. All right. The preterist, uh, the preterist timeline looks like this real quick. I'm just, this is just a refresher. This is a, this is actually, this is humorous. This image that you're looking at right now is actually borrowed from the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the JWs, they are preterists. At least the ones that I've studied are. Uh, the ones that I've researched are. And so, according to their perspective, we can see that Daniel's 490 years, or the 70 weeks of Daniel, start sometime in 455 BC, or sometime around the same starting point that many Christians hold to. I myself think that the 450, late 450s is a great starting point. Either that or the four, the, the mid 440s, either one, there's only a 12 10 to, to you know, a dozen years difference between the two starting dates, so it's not that crucial to me. But notice that the preterists start around the same date, but they conclude around the year 30 AD with the events in Messiah Yeshua's life, him arriving, him being cut off, and the end of the 70 weeks, and then that's it. Nothing more happens after that 
according to the preterist perspective. By contrast, the futurist view, which is the view that I myself hold to and the view that I'm going to be teaching during these eschatology studies, because that's the one I believe has the most, um, that makes the most sense of scripture taking in its literal, normal, historical, grammatical fashion. It doesn't try to allegorize or spiritualize scriptures. It, it accounts for what we might call uh, the genre uh, that we're studying, right? Apocalyptic literature, poetic in form, mysterious, kind of cryptic. Okay, it allows for all those. So there are there are symbols involved with this type of study. But nevertheless, when I say literal, the Bible was meant to be understood the language that it was written in, and it was meant to be understood by the people who read it so that you know when you read the book of revelation it's self-explanatory you don't have to push your idea into it like eisegesis you simply just extrapolate the information using logical deduction and expository teaching and therefore you exegete you take out of it the futurist view is that position and i believe that's the best position to arrive at myself Although this, again, this is not a salvific discussion, whether you're a preterist or a futurist or somewhere in between, idealist, eclecticist, or uh, historicist, or any of the other four, four or five positions that are available out there. It really, that part doesn't matter. The position that you arrive at simply influences your understanding of prophecy, but it should not directly impact your salvation experience, and it shouldn't impact your... Your relationship to God per se, extremes uh, notwithstanding. So the futurist view, the futurist approach to interpreting the book of Revelation holds that most of the events described in the book will take place in the end times, just prior to the second coming of Christ. This is the view that honors the book's claim to be prophecy. It also recognizes that just as the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Christ were fulfilled literally more than 100 of them, by the way. So the prophecies of the second coming and the events that will lead up to it will be fulfilled literally. So that's the position we're going to be teaching during this particular study. So sit back and relax. Let me read through the slides. Most of it is self-explanatory, so I shouldn't have to ramble as much. I'll just flip through the slides and we'll begin our study that way. First, what I want to do is I want us to summarize Daniel's prophecies using charts and graphs and images like I've popularly been doing. Okay, so we'll start with images and graphs and then we'll work our way towards written commentary. You ready? Here we go. Daniel's 70 weeks summary and conclusions. So we've got this first chart. It shows the 70th week of Daniel. It shows all of the major players according to the chart. This, by the way, is a more or less uh, a chart that harmonizes between whether you're pre-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, mid-trib. For the most part, it has harmony in, in most of those circles. What's really visually important about this particular graph is that it breaks Daniel's 490 years into the three sections that Daniel himself uses. The first section of 49 years, followed by the next section of 434 years, followed by a gap, followed by the last section of seven years. And you can see all the major details on there in this particular slide. We've been using this predominantly throughout our slideshows and throughout this particular study. We've got another uh, chart here that begins to zoom in on what we established reading through Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, bringing us into Daniel chapter 9 and following. And that is the idea that Daniel was shown the future using 
a few different dreams. There was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue with the four medals on the left side of your chart, followed by Daniel's own personal dream of the four beasts on the right side of the chart. And we can see the one-to-one -one correlation between what those dreams mean. They were both the same meaning from God's perspective, just two different tools or vehicles to be delivered to the human agents. So the gold represented Babylon, which represents a lion, which or was symbolized by a line which represents Babylon itself from two to seven. I'm reading from left to right on the chart. Silver was the Medo-Persian Empire, which was represented by the bear, which of course is the, the kingdom of Medo-Persia in the four beasts. Bronze was Greece, the leopard. Iron was Rome, the fourth beast. And then as we're going to see tonight, we're going to see that the bottom of the statue corresponds directly in the iron and clay with the 10 kingdoms which equal the ten horns and the ten kingdoms of Daniel chapter 7. That's what we're going to be zeroing in on is the 70th week of Daniel has to deal with this final stage of human history as it deals with Israel and the Gentile church, the Gentile peoples who've been grafted into Israel. How is God going to finalize all that he promised would take place in various parts of the Bible, you know, like we're going to see here in a moment, how that Daniel was told that these six things pertain to you, Israel, and your people in Jerusalem. But as we know in hindsight now, it's going to actually impact the church as well. Let's look at a, a different chart that entails the same slice of prophetic truth, but just seen from a different graphic perspective. Prophecies of Daniel from Daniel 2, as they directly correspond one-to-one -one with Daniel chapter 7, culminating in the final seven years that we Christians refer to as the tribulation. And you can see there's the prominent ten horns, and, and as well as eight horns. And then in Daniel 9, the tribulation is going to be broken up into two sections down there at the bottom there, the three and a half years and three and a half years, which represent the peace peaceful side of the three and a half years and the tribulation side of the three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Also, when we start getting more detail about how these views are represented by the two kind of polar opposing eschatology views of preterism versus futurism, right? I put this, I found this chart online, which is very, very helpful as well. Just looking at Daniel 7's beasts and over on the left side, you can see the Ten Horns, the Little Horn, who's the Antichrist, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man receives dominion. You can see that running down the left-hand side of the chart in the gray there. And you can see how the Preterist, right there in the middle, interpret those prophetic details compared to the Futurist. So the Preterist and the Futurist both recognize Babylon, Persia, Greece. But then when we talk about the Preterists, they believe that the fourth beast is ancient Rome versus the futurists believe that the fourth beast is primarily revived Rome or future Rome. My understanding is that preterism doesn't have to completely be discarded. Rather, maybe as a system of theology, it has some, some very, very questionable details. But when we're talking about end-time prophecy, it is absolutely accurate, I believe, that Daniel was looking at ancient Rome and mysteriously seeing revive Rome. So I try to harmonize both of those details when I'm looking at a chart like this. I don't say it has to be the preterist versus futurist when we're talking about eschatology. I believe that when we use the near-far prophetic telescoping 
aspect that we've been talking about over and over again. I'm not going to bring the graphic in this time with the prophetic two mountain peaks and the prophet guy. But you guys understand what I'm talking about. Go back and listen to free, free uh, previous teachings if you don't. Ancient Rome, according to Preserism, Revived Rome, according to Futurists. I think both of those have merit and so we need to give credit where credit's due 10 horns according to the preterists first century roman emperors 10 horns according to the futurists future earthly leaders makes sense to me little horn according to the preterists is nero or some other ruler like that the futurists see that the little horn is a future antichrist which we are going to deal with in future studies right the ancient of days and the throne of judgment in the preterist perspective was 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, which in, which includes the destruction of <clears throat> the destruction of Judaism and the destruction of the Torah as well as as the covenant the uh, the covenant that God made with Israel and things like that. All of that came to a a, a kind of a judgment, as it were, according to the preterist. But according to the futurist, there is a judgment on the future Antichrist when the Ancient of Days sets up its throne of judgment. It's to judge the wickedness, the wicked systems that Satan has been utilizing down through the ages, all of those uh, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the final eighth beast, seventh, well, there's a seventh one in there, which could have been either the Ottomans or the Russians or even ancient or uh, Hitler's uh, uh, Nazis or whatever, you know, fill in the blank for the seventh one, which is mysterious because it's missing from da Daniel's purview because it's a mystery it's part it's, it's it was presented in the mystery and then we have the final eighth beast empire that is the future antichrist and his eighth beast empire and the ancient of days and his throne of judgment represents a final judgment against that wicked beast system and then lastly in the list of daniel 7 is the son of man of course who's yeshua he receives his dominion and his kingdom is established and we know from reading daniel 2 and 7 that this kingdom will never be challenged it will not be overthrown it will not fade away it is a it is an everlasting kingdom that god gives to his son and so that righteous kingdom is established we get to rule and reign with yeshua we can read about that in daniel as well and so hallelujah we are looking forward to that day according to the preterist however 33 AD and Jesus' ascension brought in the kingdom and ushered in that kingdom. We've been living in that kingdom ever since. And again, I think that has some merit from a spiritual application perspective. Absolutely, what Jesus did on the cross brought in a righteousness to a level that was never before truly attainable until the finished work of Messiah took place. So I don't want to throw preterism completely under the, under the bus when we're talking about eschatology but when we're talking about historical events that we can see have relevance for us as believers as well as the wicked systems of the world and makes the most sense of bible prophecy from the normative understanding of the language that's being used the futurist says christ's rule over the millennium is still something future it will happen it's literal but hasn't happened yet looking at another chart here is we're going to be zeroing in on Daniel's 70th week itself. Daniel 7 talks about this fourth beast, which again, from the futurist perspective, is a future beast system, a revived Roman Empire, something to that effect. The fourth beast, it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. It 
is exceedingly strong. It's got 10 horns. It's dreadful, terrifying, has iron teeth with claws of bronze, and it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And often we don't take into account that fact that Rome, even though they ruled the known world at the time, East and West Rome, if you look at both of them on a map, then we could say that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled where this fourth beast empire devoured the whole earth. And yet, in hindsight, as we really know that the globe itself has more continents and countries and people groups other than what Rome actually truly conquered in its heyday, well then, actually, Daniel's prophecy was only partially fulfilled and yet awaits a future final fulfillment if and when it's Rome that is revived, which I believe it will be. It should be some form of a revived Roman Empire, probably occupying some of the general same land masses that ancient Rome did, right? Western Rome, which would be Europe today. Eastern Rome, which would be large parts of Turkey and Syria and Iraq and the Middle East, like Israel and Upper Africa and some of those areas. And so what I believe then is, according to the book of Revelation, when the revived Roman Empire or the fourth beast, the eighth beast empire of Satan, when it finally arrives on the scene, and we're going to be dealing, dealing with this tonight, some of it, when it finally arrives on the scene, eventually the book of, Romans, the book of Revelation describes a beast system that this time, make no mistake, will have its claws in the entire world system, the, the banking system, the monetary system, the financial system, the military system, the commercial system, the religious system of the world. It will have its hooks and jaw uh, into the jaw. In, it will have its hooks into everyone's jaws in one way, shape, or another. Now, of course, we Christians are... In a, in a unique position to be protected during this time or even protected completely from certain aspects of it, but we'll, be, we'll work out those details in time. So essentially, when we look at the prophetic parallels between this final beast system in Daniel's dreams and the, the king's statue, we can see that the ten toes of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream correspond one-to-one -to, -one to the ten horns of the fourth beast in Daniel's dream. And that's relevant for us because it lets us know we're on the right track. When we start to study the book of Revelation eventually in the future here, we're going to have to remind ourselves and remember these details that Daniel already established for us. And that's why we went not not line by line through the book of Daniel. This was not a deep dive into the book of Daniel, but given giving us just enough detail that allow us to understand the background material necessary to appreciate the book of Revelation when we finally get to it. So what are the facts from Daniel that we can walk away with as we begin to kind of shift our focus now to just the 70th week of Daniel with a view towards Revelation? Israel will be regathered as a nation. This is what a dispensationalist would actually even admit to as well, although the preterist would probably say, no, there's no real, no, no more Israel as a people of God, so why would they need to be regathered? But according to what we understand from Daniel's visions and prophecies, Israel will be regathered. Remember, Daniel was writing in the time of exile in Babylon. So from his vantage point, he didn't really know beyond what God showed to him what the future of Israel was. I mean, she was in timeout. She was in judgment. She had been set aside 
in timeout and in exile because she had disobeyed God. She was at God's mercy. God had every right to simply wipe her out. And yet by covenant promises made to the forefathers, he couldn't really do that. And so he promised a remnant would survive and that the people would again be restored and brought back into their land. The temple would be rebuilt. The land would be restored and the uh, people of Israel had a future. Ten nation revival of a, revo- a revived Roman Empire is what we see Daniel prophesying about according to a futurist perspective. A great ruler will emerge, which is known as the beast, the Antichrist, the little horn, the lawless one, the man of lawlessness, uh, Gog. He has a few different biblical titles that we'll get to in time. But under this great empire that will emerge in the future, this beast which will uh, swallow the entire earth this time. He'll trample down the entire earth. This time, Daniel's prophecy about trampling the entire earth will be complete. It will be a full uh, enactment. In other words, it's going to touch every continent on planet earth. The the Antichrist that, we re- that we're going to be reading about in future studies, as well as later passages of the Bible, particularly as we work our way towards the New Testament parts of your Bible, Paul describes this future beast leader, this Antichrist figure, as someone who's going to demand the worship of the entire world, right? He's going to establish himself as very God and demand that everyone or any other religious system yield to who he is. The book of Revelation also is going to give us his details, you know, implementing the mark of the beast and and punishing anyone who does not worship him or his image or take his mark, et cetera, et cetera. No buying, no selling. You guys have all heard about the mark of the beast, 666. So the world will unite under his leadership. It's demonic, to be sure. In fact, it's not demonic. It's satanic. He will be Satan incarnate, virtually, right? According to my understanding of the book of Revelation, Satan will enter into the Antichrist, who is a human being, but at the midpoint of the week, Satan will enter into Antichrist and be controlling him. He will be Satan's puppet. It will be Satan incarnate, just like Jesus was God incarnate. This Antichrist will be Satan incarnate. And so the world will unite under his leadership. God will give unbelievers over to the the strong delusion that will be uh, affecting all of mankind. He will have complete power for at least three and a half years of the seven years that we're going to be looking at tonight, he will usher in a new world religion, right? His his religion will seek to stamp out and trample other all other religions, including Christianity. Of course, we know he won't be successful, but at least he'll try. And he's going to persecute the saints, according to Daniel. Daniel foresaw this as well. So get ready, people. Get ready. And guess what? The only way you can be ready is if you place your trust and faith in Messiah Yeshua. You can't trust your bank account. You can't trust your portfolio. You can't trust your resume. You can't trust your your upbringing, your family background. You can't trust your IQ. You can't trust how many degrees you earn from college, this and that. You can't trust your good looks or your ethnic background. The only thing that is going to be able to save you when this time comes is your genuine faith in the only one who is more powerful than Satan incarnate himself, and that is Yeshua the Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God. Do you know him? All right, looking at Revelation 13 and comparing that to Daniel, like we're going to be kind of working our way towards, using the chapters of Daniel uh, that include 7, 8, 9 is not in this list, but it does include 9, and it works our way towards 11, and we eventually will get to more of these details that Daniel talks about as we turn to the prophecies that are recorded for us by Yeshua in, in the Gospels, as well as 
Paul's writings and then working way towards the book of Revelation. We're going to see that this beast that rises from the sea was already spoken of by Daniel, who has ten horns, uh, blasphemy and speaking great things. Uh, the he, he has characteristics of the previous empires, leopard, bear, and lion, this final beast empire. He is a great power who will rule at least for 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days. Those are all details that are given for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 13 as well. He will conquer saints, right? So there is tribulation ahead for us if you are a believer. In fact, if you are anything but on the Antichrist side, you're going to be persecuted. This means even if you're an Orthodox Jew and you hold to Orthodox Judaism, and you reject the religion of Antichrist, he's going to persecute you as well. If you're a Muslim and you're a faithful Muslim and you believe that Muhammad is the true only true prophet and you are a good standing uh, practicer, a practitioner of Islam, the Antichrist is going to persecute you as well. Again, he's just going to challenge any other religious system. Global domination and authority will be granted to him. And this is God's plan, right, people? This is not just Satan usurping his own authority on all of humanity, but God is allowing and giving this time to Satan for the purpose of God's plans and for the purpose of judgment to run its course. Captivity, sword, flame, plunder, right? Worship the image or die. This is what is coming down the road, not just for believers, not just for Jews, not just for Muslims, not just for Buddhists, not just for other religions, not just for the financial world, not just for the the other cultures around the world, but this is coming to everyone in the world according to the basic understanding of end-time prophecies that we're going to be looking at. So, this is a study on eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Arya ben Lyman Hanavi, and we're working our way through the commentary that I put together using this particular slideshow. So we've already looked at Daniel through some charts and graphs and pictures. Let's now summarize Daniel's prophecies using commentary and scripture. So let's work our way through some more details. This is Daniel's 70 weeks summary and conclusion. From this point forward in the slideshow and in the presentation and the teaching, I'll try to just stick to reading as much as possible since there won't be, there's some pictures in here as well, don't worry, it's not all text. But since the text is meant to prevent me from rambling and staying on top, it'll allow me to stay on topic, I'll simply read. And if I need to pause, I will, but primarily let me just read, okay? Summary and conclusions. The times in which we live become more and more interesting on almost a daily basis. These are my own thoughts that were penned over 20 years ago when I first did this particular study on eschatology. And I have recently decided to reuse this particular commentary. I updated a lot of some of the wording and some of the concepts, but the, the foundational part of it is the same. And yet at the same time, it is simply a summary so it's a, it's it's not very in-depth at this perspective so i decided to use this as the summary conclusionary part as we're beginning to look at the 70th week of daniel please remember what we're doing at this point in time is we're summarizing what we've already looked at at daniel 9 24 25 26 and 27 using pastor david guzik's material so we're using this material as summary and conclusionary material so there'll be a little bit of repetition as we summarize where we've been all right the times in which we live become more and more interesting on almost a daily basis. 
Many have begun to look for the return of Jesus Christ for his church and to judge an unbelieving world. What does the Bible teach concerning the end times? This is my viewpoint from a futurist perspective. I say it this way. There's certainly a lot of confusion among Christians as to exactly what the Bible does say about the end times, especially where the church is concerned. I hope that this series of teachings will help dispel some of that confusion. This series aims to offer a broad overview of end times prophecy as revealed in God's word. For those of you who may disagree with some of what you read here, I hope that you will stay with me until the end of this series. Give some prayerful thought to what you read, what you read and what you read. And by all means, compare what I have to say with what God has revealed in the Bible. All right. What I want us to be aware of is that in this summary and conclusion, one of the central prophecies of both the first and second coming of Jesus is found in the ninth chapter of Daniel. Let's just read the relevant verses real quick. Starting in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, I'm not going to read the Hebrew on the right side, but it's there just for reference in case I need it. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, So you turn no and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. This is the NASB version of the Bible, by the way. Verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And the final Pasuk, verse 27, the final verse, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And in the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who, and I apologize, the slide got cut off there, but it says on the one who makes desolate. All right. This passage, in my understanding, is known as Daniel 70 weeks or the 70 weeks of Daniel. I say my understanding, but really everybody calls it the same thing. Let's summarize this briefly. First, the term weeks literally means sevens. In context, they refer to years. So we could render verse 24 as, quote, 77s of years are determined for your people and your holy city, etc., etc., end quote. Now, how long a period of time is this referring to? We learned in our studies that 70 times 7 would be 490 years. Israel was given 490 years to complete or that is, I'm sorry, 49 years to accomplish these things. We also know that it's not Israel who's doing the things per se. It's God who's orchestrating these things that we're going to be reading about. Indeed, the next six things that, I just sh- that I'm going to show you in the next slide here can only be accomplished by God and his Messiah. They can't be accomplished by Israel itself. But it involves Israel and it involves the Gentile world around Israel. So here, here's the six things that Daniel was told in advance would impact his people from the moment that he was there in Babylon moving forward. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. And we could almost neatly divide this list of six into three and three. The first three were primarily and even more to the point spiritually accomplished by Yeshua 
at his first coming. And yet the final three, four, five, and six must be accomplished at a second coming. But overall, we're still talking about things that have both a spiritual as well as a literal fulfillment that we are looking forward to. Let's keep reading. In verse 25, Gabriel told Daniel that from the time the command was given to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah came would be 483 years, i.e. seven weeks and 62 weeks. This is an overview and a summary of what we've already learned. So some of this is repetition. That decree was given by Artaxerxes, you can read, it, read about it in Nehemiah, and it was fulfilled 483 years later when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. In verse 26, we were told that sometime after the 483 years, the Messiah would be cut off. We learned that the literal meaning here is suffer the death penalty. That's how normally the word karat in the Hebrew is used in the Bible to uh to indicate execution, loss of life. But in context, it can also mean uh, what we might call put out of a, group, of a people group or excommunicated from a larger group or something to that effect. We could render this uh, phrase, Messiah will suffer the death penalty, but not for himself, right? Cut off, but not for himself. This, and then, in other words, it was, it was a death that he himself didn't deserve. He died on behalf of, of other people, just like Isaiah chapter 53 teaches us, right? His death was efficacious for us, but it was substitutionary atonement that we're talking about. He paid the price that we ourselves couldn't pay by dying on the cross for us. This brought in the uh, atonement and brought in the salvation that we, we, of course, need. This prophecy was fulfilled not, I'm sorry, this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus suffered the death penalty on the cross of Calvary, not for himself, but for us. This is important, by the way, for our studies, because whether you're a preterist or a futurist, you have to accept the atoning work of Messiah in order for the rest of the Bible to make sense. We go on to find out that Gabriel continues saying that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Again, we know that this was fulfilled in 70 AD, just like the preterists say, just like the historicists say, and just like the futurists say. It's probably only only the idealists uh, who reject wholesale maybe the idea that this has to have had some historical relevance. But if you're a Christian and you're idealist, then you probably also agree that these aspects of 70 AD involved the death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and things like that. But we know that this was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed both the city of Jerusalem and the temple. I call this partial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy because we know there will be a rebuilt Jerusalem, a rebuilt temple. We're already living in a time when Jerusalem has been rebuilt, but the temple is still yet waiting rebuilding. And yet, when the future Antichrist comes, the people of the prince that is to come, which of course I believe is Antichrist, this people will once again trample Jerusalem for 42 months like we read about in the book of Revelation. So this is Daniel's 70th week, the summary and the conclusions. We're learning more about things that we've already studied, but we are beginning to peel back more and more layers of what Daniel's final 70th week entails. So now let's turn directly into Daniel's final 70th week summary and conclusions. In verse 27, we already studied a little bit of this using Guzik's material, but now we're using my own conclusionary material here in these slides. In verse 27, we began to see some very interesting things. Let's look at this verse very closely once more. Here's Daniel 9:27 from the NASB. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, 
he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. All right, let's uh, unpack this. In order to gain the best understanding of this verse, I believe that we need to back up to the previous verse and identify who the opening he of this verse, verse 27, is referring to. So I'm going to use two primary resources. First one, a web Bible commentary resource at kingcomments.com has these valuable insights for us to consider. So the next few slides that we're going to see flash by the screen in the italics is from kingcomments.com. Quote, the second part of verse 26 gives a transition from the situation in the year 70 to the situation in the end of time or the 70th year week. That 70th year week is what we are talking about in verse 27. Daniel, the 70th year week, Israel is back in its land. This is demonstrated by the fact that sacrifices are being made again. There is a temple service again, as I interject. It could be a full-blown temple, which I think has strong merit. It could be a what we might call a portable structure like the tabernacle. All we need is something that allows for sacrifices to be officiated and something that allows for a defilement by the Antichrist himself. That's why I think it's a temple, but again, I could be wrong. It could be just a tabernacle, but either way, it's something that will gain the world's attention when the time comes. Let's continue with this particular web resource. The he of this verse is the prince of the previous verse who will come. It is the ruler of the restored Western Roman Empire, the fourth world empire, the united Europe that gave its power into the hands of a single dictator, the beast from the sea, according to Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Remember that chart that we looked at earlier? It, it, it points to the time when the Roman Empire is again present and Israel is again present and both empires have a ruler. Let me interject once again. The reason why we... Prophecy buffs believe that it's a restored Roman Empire, a revived Roman Empire, is because when Daniel saw the vision from the king's dream of the statue, as well as his own vision with the four beasts, he didn't really quite probably understand the now and not yet near and far aspect of this fourth metal slash fourth beast as it pertains to being Rome and at the same time being a revived Rome. Right From his perspective, it simply looked like one beast, one entity, one metal. And yet when we read through the details about the metal and its ten toes and the beast and its ten horns, etc., etc., we begin to realize that Rome simply didn't exhaust all of those details. Ancient Rome doesn't fit the total fulfillment of what we read about in Daniel. There must be more to Rome than, than was already uh, presented for us from a historical landscape. Let's keep reading. We're almost done here, about five more minutes left, and then we'll find a, a stopping point and fin pick this up next week. By the way, by way of slides, I've got about 80 slides in this presentation, and we're only on slide number 37, so we're, we're going to work our way through about half of this slideshow, and then we'll pick this up next week. Here's what King Commons has to say. The covenant that he makes, right, the Antichrist, the one that he makes firm is the covenant that he, the autocrat of the United Western Europe, will make with the unbelieving mass of the Jews, the many possibly under the leadership of the Antichrist. Seen from the Jewish side, it is a treaty with death, right? Read Isaiah 28, 15, and 18. 
They continue, the apostate mass of the Israelites will do this to defend themselves, right, make this covenant, and to protect themselves against the enemies surrounding them, of which the greatest enemy is Assyria, or Syria to the north. I don't think they go by the name of Assyria anymore, they just call themselves Syria, right, which is conveniently, if you look on a map, kind of sandwiched to the north of Israel, right, above Lebanon, you keep going up, right, Lebanon, and then you get up into Syria, and it's bordering with turkey and it also borders with iraq i believe so turkey syria iraq you have all of those right to the immediate north of israel and all of them take basically almost what we might say an enemy perspective of israel so by assyria we can understand syria they they, they explain this as well syria in an alliance with some other arab states and those other arab states could be perhaps Iraq and Iran, like right now we've been reading in the news, a lot of news about Iran forming some military uh, coalitions and strikes against Israel, attacking Israel at that level. Of course, we know eventually all of the major players there in the Middle East surrounding Israel are going to attack her in some shape or fashion. And this is driven not just by the demonic spirit of Antichrist, which is present in the world today, even if Antichrist himself is not making himself known, but the demonic spirit of Antichrist, which of course is the spirit of Satan, which hates God's people. Israel hates Christians, hates the Messiah, hates God but is hell-bent on destroying Israel as a people group and wiping her off the map, utilizes these, these other Arab states as pawns in his grand scheme to try and defeat God's plans and purposes by the first trying to defeat the Messiah, which he failed at, right? He tried in the first century to kill the Messiah and keep him dead, but of course we know Messiah is very God-veiled in the flesh, and so he can't keep him in the grave, right? Baruch Hashem, praise God. But also, as we're drawing our study to the close tonight, we're learning that as we draw closer and closer to more end-time events unfolding in the book of Revelation, coming alive before our very eyes, these Arab states are going to be utilized once again to, as we're going to see, come into focus as they turn their sights on destroying Israel and attacking Israel. And when the 70th week begins to kick off, there will be prominent news about Israel under attack, wars and rumors of wars and things like that. Israel is going to be interested in trying to find and make peace. And maybe even for the first three and a half years, she will have a measured amount of unprecedented peace there in the Middle East. Yet we know that at the midpoint, you know, all hell is going to break loose. So let's keep reading here. Assyria is so strong, according to this website, because it is supported by the mighty Russian Empire that lies north of them. So we have Russia just above those other ones that I just mentioned. And we know Russia's already in the in the news prominently because of their war on Ukraine, etc. etc. And this has to do with prophecy unfolding before our very eyes of these key players over in that part of the world. Russia, China, you know, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan and Egypt below Israel. And of course, then we've got Western Rome, which is the European Union and things like that. All of these are going to be major players that will be occupying their places in the end times events. Again, this is what the prophetic word shows and what we see confirmed in current events. As we're drawing our study to a close, let's just uh, uh, look at a few more slides here. 
Continuing with this quote from King Comments, in the middle of the week, however, a dramatic change takes place. This change heralds the most terrible time the earth has ever experienced. This time is called the Great Tribulation, according to this web resource, Matthew 24, 21, and also the time of Jacob's distress, Jeremiah 31, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. This period will last half a year, week, i.e. three and a half years. In that time, an unprecedented suffering will affect mankind. What people will do to each other defies any description. Violence of war and natural disasters will uninhibitably cause their slaughter. They continue, the spiritual torments to which men are exposed will drive them to insanity. An impressive description of it, of it can be found in Revelation 6 through 9, those chapters. The introductory event is the casting of the devil from heaven to earth, knowing that he has a little time, i.e. three and a half years. And we read about that in Revelation 12, verse 9 and 12, verse, uh, Revelation 12, 9 and 12b. And what I say in my commentary, and this will provide us with a stopping point and a little bit of cliffhanger, cliffhanger for next week, that is the end of kingcomments.com and what i say in my own writing is that at this point let us continue our summary of the 70th week of daniel by examining an additional interpretation from a slightly different perspective turning to a christian blog post by the name of the bible says.com here's what they have to say about the events that will unfold in those last days beginning at the midpoint of the week going forward but we're not going to move forward just yet We'll stop right here, and that'll be the end of our study. We'll pick this up next week, and this will probably follow over into the week after, which kind of conveniently poises us for our eventual look at the excursus material from the, the sign book on the Antichrist himself. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to tatetor.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Tour Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic, uh, 
every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat, uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here, or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well too. I mean, uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Oriobin Lyman Hanavi. Let's pick up where we left off. As you can see on your screen, biblicalunitarian.com has a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Their position, and I'll flash a little graphic on the screen for you to see this as well, their position is that God is God the Father alone. There are no other gods, and there are no other persons. God is a unity. He's a single being. He's numerically one, and there are no persons of the Trinity to contend with. Also, Jesus the Son is the man that G that God adopted to be his son. He was born in the first century, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father as he's been glorified by God, and he's worthy of worship in limited contexts as God, but really only in the sense that God has glorified him and glorified his son's name that all men should worship him.
But he's not the second person of the Trinity. He is not deity, according to biblical Unitarian. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit is the is another name for God. He's an impersonal force of God. And when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it's either another way of describing God the Father, since God is holy and God is spirit. Therefore, Holy Spirit is simply another moniker for God himself, God the Father. Or when we're talking about that power that we Christians can possess that God grants as a gift and bestows upon us in what we might call anointing fashion, then the Holy Spirit is a power from on high, but he's not the third person trinity according to biblical Unitarian. We're looking at Psalm 45 verse 6 as been as it's been reproduced in Hebrews 1 verse 8. Biblical Unitarian has their own explanation on their own website. We looked at their explanation in, in studies gone by. Go back and listen to those particular teachings. But the gist of what they say about Psalm 45, verse 6, is captured in this quote that you can see on your screen. Let me make that a little bigger. There we go. And scroll back down to the bottom. And so their conclusion about this passage uh, in the book of Psalms and the book of Hebrews is primarily a twofold rejection of a a rejection of the fact that this psalm is speaking of Jesus being God, right? When we read the psalm, I suppose I should have done that first. Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom, according to the NIV. And this verse has been reproduced nearly word for word verbatim. There's some slight minor Greek differences when it shows up in the book of Hebrews, but for the most part, it's, it's identical. And so... According to the Trinitarian perspective, this is a verse that is referring to Jesus as God. Like it says, your throne, O God. But according to the biblical Unitarian position, the objection is twofold. One, the person that's being addressed in the book of Psalms is the earthly king, either the, the Davidic king, David himself, or Solomon, or some other Davidic king who is nevertheless recognized by God to be in a righteous position. And therefore, the word God there is used in the way that Elohim is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to non-deity, i.e. Moses is referred to as Elohim, uh, to Pharaoh, and in the book of Leviticus, we find the word Elohim referring to judges and magistrates and things like that. So, Biblical Unitarian says, this is just an earthly king, it's a human king, your throne, O God, is forever, means that God is the authority, the throne of the earthly king, and the king reigns with the authority of God. The second issue that they take with the standard Christian interpretation is that they decide to reinterpret the Hebrew phrase that we're going to read here in a moment, and the Greek as well, from being your throne, O God, is forever, to your throne is God forever, or God is your throne forever. And you're thinking, what? How is God a throne? How is he a chair? And so this king, and by extension the Messiah, the true king of Israel, has been specifically anointed by God, but only because he is a human king who follows in the lines of the other righteous Davidic kings that were promised to sit on the throne of David by God himself. So their objection, again, is twofold. They object to the Trinitarian position that this psalm is referring to Jesus as God, and they object to the translation that's offered by most Christian versions that say, your throne, O God. And we're going to talk about that vocative in, in a moment. So, 
What they have made available online at revisedenglishversion.com is their own commentary to this passage found in the book of Hebrews, quoting the book of Psalms. And, uh, you're, you know, I encourage you to go and research this on your own. See if their position is plausible. See if it's tenable. See if it's, see if it's, if it has some legs to stand on. I myself reject their position for, for a couple, a couple of reasons, but let's see if I can work those reasons out tonight. Let's start again by reading the, the verse in question and then work our way through, like I called the structural analysis. We're going to have to peel back some of the Hebrew and the Greek. It won't be very difficult, as we're going to find out. And then we're going to look at some other versions and we'll come to conclusions using some Trinitarian leaning commentaries at the end of, of this commentary itself. We'll probably have to spill this over into a part, uh, a second week and a third week again. We're just taking our time with this material. Psalm 45, verse 6 reads, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Hebrew corresponding says, Kisach Elohim olam ve'ed. That's the first clause, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then the second clause says, Shevet mishor shevet malchutecha. Uh, your you, the, the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of righteousness, or the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, etc., etc. So that's Psalm 45 in the NASB version of the Bible. Last week, I'm not going to do this tonight, but last week we looked at all the differing versions in English, and we find that most of the Christian versions favor your throne, O God, or something like that. It is only those groups that reject the Trinitarian position and those that want to be a little more neutral or um, that go for something like your throne is God or God is your throne or the throne given of God, like we'll see in the Jewish publication version here in a moment. When we start to peel back some of the Hebrew and just look at the wording, the differences that were conveyed over in the Greek by the writer to the book of Hebrews, we see that the Hebrew has your throne is kisacha. Right, which is a noun, masculine and singular construct, second person, masculine and singular. Oh God, from the English, is simply the word Elohim. And the point I was trying to highlight last week, which I'll do again this week, and I hope you don't get lost on, is that there's this form of a noun in the Greek known as the vocative case, V-O-C-A-T-I-V-E, vocative. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen here in a moment. This vocative Greek case is represented by Greek very nicely. We see it showing up whenever we directly address a person. That's what vocative means. It means a case of noun used to address a person. So, for instance, the example I gave last week was as if my wife was telling me to wash my dishes and she says, Hey, Ariel, go wash your dishes. All right, you need to wash your dishes. Well, in this little example, and I'll put a little clever, funny little graphic on the screen of cartoon characters of me and my wife. When she says Ariel, the form or case of the noun Ariel in the Greek would be in the vocative case. It's a form of personal dress. But when we correspond this back to the Hebrew, it simply says Elohim. It doesn't say O Elohim or something to that effect. However, there is a way to kind of mimic the vocative in the Hebrew using two or three words connected to one another, but it's not in this verse, right? It doesn't say that. I think it's something to the effect of, of like um, uh, El Yah or 
na na uh uh ya na or na ya uh, just off the top of my head i'm from memory i'll pull up the verse in post-production afterwards and show it to you i apologize i should have had it pulled up but it can be represented but it just doesn't show up in this verse so um from the hebrew it doesn't force us to translate it as oh god using the vocative so it's almost like a comma your throne comma oh god comma forming the vocative and then the rest of the passage is fairly straightforward endures forever noun masculine singular and ever conduct conjunctive vob with a noun masculine singular and which is a noun masculine singular uh shevet really justice mishor which is a noun masculine singular is the scepter uh, shevet now masculine singular of your kingdom malchuteka which is a noun feminine singular construct uh put together with the second person masculine singular so nothing really relevant to our study that forces us to into evocative understanding per se when we begin to turn to the book of hebrews which is written in greek originally then we see that uh this quote and let me scroll down we see that this quote beginning in verse eight says but regarding the son so the writer to the book of hebrews saw something in not just the hebrew but he saw something in the greek of psalm 45 that drove him of course inspired by the holy spirit to do so that drove him to notice the vocative which was already present in the septuagint version Remember, remind yourself, we'll look at it here in a moment. The Septuagint is the Greek rendering translation of the Hebrew. The original Hebrew got translated into Greek about two centuries before Jesus hit the scene, and it was the prominent translation used by Greek-speaking Jews of that time. It's still in use today, but not as much by Jewish people for a number of reasons. But the remainder to our studies that the writer to the book of Hebrews says, but regarding the Son, he says, we have to ask ourselves, who is the he in this passage the he according to the book of hebrews is god so it's so point blank the writer to the book of hebrews writing under the inspiration of the holy spirit says but regarding the son god the father says your throne O god is forever and ever thus in the vocative form the your throne O god the O god is the vocative clause in this form the writer to the book of hebrews simply took the greek Septuagint, which reads the same way, your throne, O God, is forever, in the vocative, which we'll find out here in a moment. And he simply carried that straight over into his version and realized that this is a passage about Messiah, and it is a passage about the deity of Messiah, because God the Father, who is deity, is giving the title God to his Son. I'll represent this in post-production in a syllogistic form where we see that the premise one, premise two leads to the conclusion, right? I'll, I'll, I'll show you this in post. I apologize. I don't have a way. I didn't have that. I could have had this pulled up in uh, in PowerPoint here, but I had another PowerPoint that I had to focus on that I didn't want to take its place. So let's begin to peel back some of the book of Hebrews and um, look at the Greek here real quick. Let me scroll down to verse eight. And this is the relevant passage uh, that the writer of the book of Hebrews has borrowed from the Septuagint. We're going to look at that in a moment, but first let's look at the book of Hebrews. So we read the passage, we'll read it one more time. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. How does the Greek read? It says, let me see if I can capture all of it. There we go. 
It says, Pras de ton huion ha thronasu ha theas ace ton iona tu ionas kai he chabdos tes you thu tetas chabdos tes basilea su. Now, the clause that is in uh, question tonight is. So, sorry about that. Let's highlight. There we go. Is this one right here? These two words. Ha. Oops. Ha theos. So prostaton huion, but of the sun. Ha thronos, the throne su. Ha thronos su, the throne of you. And then our two words that are highlighted. Ha, which is the, and theos, which is God. But ha is the article, but in this time, in this case, the article doesn't have a, a normative case like we would think of, like just a standard article the or a. Instead, because of the way Greek functions, it's playing the part of the vocative. And so instead of reading the throne, I'm sorry, the God, it's rendered as oh God. Oh, God. All right, let's look at this. Let's break it down. Before I break it down, let me just um, remind you that the different versions of the Greek from what we have available for us of the Christian versions, most of them have the same translation from the Hebrew. That is to say, when it comes to your throne, oh, God, they opt for the vocative for good reason. It's because the Greek is in the vocative. And so for a outfit for a denomination such as Biblical Unitarian and the Unitarian groups that reject Trinitarian theology, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as mainstream and rabbinic Judaism, National Israel, groups that are non-Trinitarian, for them to opt for a different translation is only based on the Hebrew, but not based on the Greek. Of course, we know rabbinic Judaism has good reason to tr translate from the Hebrew the way they do stripping it of its vocative for two good reasons. Number one, the Hebrew doesn't have the vocative. And number two, they're not reading the New Testament. Therefore, they don't care about the Septuagint as it's been translated and utilized by the writer of the book of Hebrews. So there's, that's why they reject it. And of course, they reject Jesus wholesale anyway as the Messiah figure. But for a Christian group such as Biblical Unitarian and the Unitarians, and or the Jehovah's Witnesses, we're going to look at their version here tonight as well, if we have time, they both decide to opt for a different translation from the standard Greek, which reads, your throne, O God, using the vocative. They instead opt for a different translation that has something to the effect of, your throne is God. In other words, they use it, they, they, they turn the vocative clause into what we call a nominative clause. So they render it as your throne is God, or they, they switch the syntax, God is your throne, or like Judaism options op, offers your throne given of God, you know, like Rashi translates or something like that. So I just want to make you aware of the differing English renderings from the original Greek of the book of Hebrews are virtually identical to what we looked at last week, so I don't need to scroll down through those and read each one of them like I did last week. But most of them say, Your throne, O God. There are a few, very a minority few, that read alternately, but it's not based on a different Greek text. The point I'm trying to highlight is that it's just based on a difference of opinion in interpretation and theology from high Christology to low Christology. Let's analyze part of this Greek itself. Let's see if I can blow that up. Let's see, 250 was what I had before. All right, so this is 
large as I can make it. The textual analysis of the parallel Greek, right? We looked at this earlier. Pros, unto, which is a preposition. De, however, which is a conjunction. Ton, which is the, an article. Huion, which is son, which is a noun. And then we have Strong's number 3580, which is an article, which we pronounce as ha, which is translated as the word the. And then we have thronos, which is the word thrown in English. You can even hear the similar sounding from the Greek to the Hebrew, or from the Greek to the English thronos, throne, which is a noun. And then su, which is a preposition. And the uh, the preposition is a pronoun, or I'm sorry, it's a personal pronoun, not a preposition. What am I thinking? Personal pronoun, uh, Sue, of you. And then we get into this article again. It's the same article that we saw just above, 3588. Same article. But because of the way Greek grammar is plugging uh, its accent points and the way it is interacting one one word interacting in a verse with the surrounding greek words in any particular verse this particular rendering of the article suddenly turns into and you can see over on the right side it says art dash vms which is short for article vocative masculine singular so that particular case greek has cases for its nouns the case changes according to the grammar and according to its use in the sentence so this time it's rendered as ha i mean it's still pronounced ha but it's rendered as o instead of the the next word going down thaos is god it's a noun and then ace is a preposition rendered to ton is the article rendered as the iona is the greek word for age uh the english word for age it's a noun Two is the article of the, is how we render it in English. And then Ionos is age in the noun again, same uh, root word as we saw earlier. Kai is the conjunction and. Hey is the article the. Hrabdos uh, is the noun scepter. Tace is the English word of, it's an article. Sorry about that. Euthutetos uh, is the noun righteousness. Chabdos, again, is the noun scepter. The word the there is just added by uh, translation, but it doesn't actually show up in the Greek. The article taste is the article of the or the in the English. Basileas, from where we get our English word basilica, is the English word kingdom. It's a noun. And then sue with the little star next to it is the word of you it's it's the personal pronoun again and the reason there's a star is because if i scroll down into this particular uh tool that i'm using you'll find that the greek text that's utilized by nestle and some of the newer versions of your bible the final word and this isn't vastly this isn't grossly important but i'm just drawing it to your attention the final wording in this passage of autu the very beginning at the very end this word right there uh is represents a variant from what we might call the majority text what which kjv uses so if you scroll down a little bit let me see if i can show two that are side by side here we go um in this version right here of the greek the final word says autu but in this version, it is the word sue. 
right? So taste Basileia Sioux, the kingdom of you uh, versus the kingdom uh, taste Basileus out too. And how does this impact the particular translations? Let me scroll past the Greek. In the KJV, which uses the majority text, which has the word Sioux at the very end, it reads, but unto the son, thy, he said, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom or the scepter of your kingdom. But in the NASB, it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. That's the outu. The scepter of the outu is him rather than your. So you can see the difference between these two right here. NASB, the scepter of his kingdom. That's where we have the Greek word outu, right? Um, uh, what does it say? Taste Basileus how to. And yet in the King James Version, which uses the majority text, Taste Basileus how uh, su uh, is the scepter of thy kingdom or, or of your kingdom. But I mean, that's a minor difference, people. That doesn't really even, even impact the vocative up above, which we're really focusing on. I thought I'd just bring it to your attention. All right, let's drop that back to 250 where I was earlier. All right, so um, here's another look at the Greek of these particular. Uh, verses when we look at this particular article again ha in the vocative masculine singular the definite article including the feminine he and the neuter two in all their inflections the definite article the so under ordinary circumstances it's just a definite article the greek strong's number 3588 is the word ha but for our particular uh hebrew uh, greek use right now it suddenly turns into the vocative all right, and why is that so important? In the book of Hebrews, we will eventually look at verse 9, but I don't want to tonight. In the Septuagint, this is what I wanted to show you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. A, a, a popular English translation that's similar to the KJV, where it uses the Greek, um, taste basileia su, the kingdom of yours, instead of the kingdom of his. So this one has the, the right scepter. And we can see that um, right there. So these renderings that we're looking at in the Greek, let me just highlight them for you. Well, first, the Hebrew there, once again. In the Greek, we see two different translations from the uh, Septuagint. The one on the left here is the Alexandrinus version of the Septuagint. The one on the right, which is here, is the Vaticanus uh, version of the Septuagint. And in this case, they are both identical. Which reads identical to the Vaticanus here on the right. Identical, word for word. So uh, the um, English uh, translations below are going to be identical. At least they should be. Your throne of God is forever and ever. A rod of righteousness is the rod of your kingdom. And then the uh, alternate version, your throne of God is forever and ever, rod of righteousness, the rod of your kingdom. So no, from between the Alexandrinus and the Vaticanus, no variant that I'm detecting exists. But when we click on this word, ha, in this particular tool that I'm using, shows it as the article, nominative, singular, masculine, uh, meaning the, this, that, the person who, the thing, that, ha, day, 
uh, hoy de but he they owe in its particular different forms. And when we look at the forms between the masculine, the feminine, and the neuter, and the singular and the plural, we have a nominative case, a genitive case, a dative case, and an accusative, accusative case. And we don't see the vocative on this particular tool in this particular tool. But when we look at other tools, like we just looked at here, we definitely see that this is in the vocative. Oops, didn't mean to go to verse 9. Um, right here, ha, right here. Let me highlight it. Article, vocative, masculine, singular. Um, another tool here. This right here, if I hi highlight that, you probably can't see it because it's too small, but I'll blow it up in post-production. Ha, art, VMS. V stands for vocative. Now, before you begin to cry foul that, boy, Ariel, you're putting all your eggs in one basket when it comes to understanding this passage just using one simple not only greek word but just a simple greek letter are you ariel as a trinitarian believer hanging all of your understanding on one single greek letter is that what am i doing is that what i'm doing well no that's not what i'm doing however i'm only highlighting all of the greek differences between the vocative and a nominative because of the way biblical unitarian rejects and forms their argument against the new testament reading as the writer to the book of hebrews has reproduced it from the greek septuagint because of the way they reject the vocative and hang a lot of their argument on the translational bias that they say the interpretive issue they are the ones making a big deal out of the interpretation let's look at these interpretations from their perspective the revised english version.com which is available online for free for anyone who wants to look at it this is biblical unitarians own proprietary version of the bible the rev they created this version the same interpretive team that uh drives that website at biblicalunitarian.com created this particular version as far as i can understand and so when we scroll down to verse six in their version you can see right here oops sorry about that uh let's try that one more time i clicked on the verse without realizing it when you look at this particular verse right there your throne is god forever and ever Notice they take the vocative form of this clause out of their English translation and insert the what we call the nominative clause instead. Your throne is God or God is your throne. You can swap it around into still the same syntax, same nominative representation. Your throne is God forever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We've already discussed how what this means from their perspective is that God is and throne here are kind of uh, uh, representing what we might almost refer to as evasive synonyms or anthropomorphisms or symbolic language that represents the authority that God grants to this earthly king. Your throne, your authority is God, i.e. from God. It's God's authority that rests on you. And how long does it rest on you? Forever and ever. So to say that your throne is God forever and ever is to say that the authority from God is the authority that establishes this righteous king and allows his kingdom to be established forever and ever because God himself is eternal. That's what it means to say your throne is forever or uh, God is forever your throne or your throne is forever God or, or something to that effect. Or as we're going to see here in the case of 
the, the Jehovah's Witnesses version as well as the standard Hebrew ver the Jewish version of the throne that's given of God. So their own version, the biblical Unitarian version of the book of Psalms has your throne as God forever and ever, right? They take out the vocative. That's why I've kind of highlighted it. They remove the your throne, O God, because if it's addressing God, I'm sorry, if, if the verse is addressing an earthly king by calling him God, there's only two possibilities in the mind of the biblical Unitarian. One, the word God here, the Greek, the Hebrew word Elohim, the Greek word Theos, is either the lesser use of the word Elohim, i.e. a non-high Christology, a non-deity form where we call Moses Elohim before Pharaoh. It doesn't mean that Moses is God, like God is Elohim. It means the lesser use of the word in the Hebrew, meaning magistrate or judge or person of authority, a prominent person. So the word Elohim can be, it must be understood by context. Most often the context is God is the Elohim, the deity who we refer to as the one being known as God, the single God there is the only one true God. He is Elohim, right? But in lesser contexts, the word Elohim in the Hebrew can refer to a human ruler. So, Biblical Unitarian says that's one way that the word Elohim is being used in this verse. It could be translated that way. But they instead opt for taking the word Elohim as a type of evasive synonym, a, a metonym, as it were, a stand-in word for the word God in its representation of authority. Your throne is God forever, meaning the authority that you that is vested on you and rests on you is from God, and it's... It's implemented in the form of your, the, the way you rule from the throne. Your throne is God forever. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm telling you what they're saying, but I could just read it. Your throne is God forever means that God is the authority, the throne of the king. The word throne there is in quotes, scare quotes, some people call them, is the throne of the king and the king reigns with the authority of God. That's what the word throne there means in, in the biblical Unitarian model, which, by the way, again, has some basis in its truth, right? The Davidic king, whether it's David or Solomon or Yeshua, who's going to be ruling from earth one day, they, in fact, do get their authority from God, right? That's true. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that perspective. I'm simply saying that what the book of Psalms recorded for us, which is the vocative in the Greek, remember the, the LXX translators did that, not, not the biblical Unitarian group, not the Trinitarians. We're not the ones who wrote the Septuagint and neither did you, you biblical Unitarians or you, you do, you Jehovah's Witnesses. None of us, Johnny come lately groups wrote the Septuagint, right? That was written by Jewish people, Greek speaking Jews in, in the early centuries before the time of Messiah. They're the ones who captured ha theos and used the word ha there in the, in the vocative form. So Biblical Unitarian says there's only one, two ways to look at this verse, and one of them is not the Trinitarian option. So they, they take the Trinitarian option, they just take it off the table altogether. Look at their rendering from the book of Psalms as compared to their rendering of the book of Hebrews. The quote in verse 8, it says, and I'll highlight the verse for you. It says, but of the Son, it says, your throne is God forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. What do they do? They simply translate it the exact same way they translated the psalm. They removed the vocative. And they went on to explain that there are some Greek scholars who are Christians who say that the vocative is a perfectly acceptable translation, but it 
breaks the con- breaks with the context because the word Elohim they explain is used four times in this psalm from the original Hebrew the word Elohim and three of those times it is referring to God without question and then suddenly it's referring to the king as Elohim so you have um the the psalmist let me just show this to you because some of you are probably getting lost the psalmist used the word Elohim uh, four times Starting in verse 3, gird your sword on your on your thigh, O mighty, I'm sorry, starting in verse 2. You are fairer than the sons of men, grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Hebrew word, Elohim. Who's the context? God in heaven. Not the earthly king, verse 2, God in heaven. Skipping down to verse 6, the verse in question. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Same word Hebrew Elohim that we saw in verse 2, who's the subject? According to we Trinitarians, the subject is the earthly king here on earth. It's not God in heaven. But notice in verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, same word Elohim doubled up, has anointed you with oil of joy above your fellows. So this forms the fourth use of the word Elohim. Who's the subject of verse 7? Therefore, God, your God, the God in heaven, according to this translation. So, According to the analysis by Biblical Unitarian, the word Elohim shows up four times in this psalm, and three of those times, the context is pointing to God in heaven. He's the Elohim. And yet, suddenly, out of the blue, the psalmist wants to refer to this earthly king as God. They say that breaks the context, and so that's why they pull in a variety of Christian Greek scholars, not a lot of them, but some of them, who say, well, based on context, something's wrong. Why should we translate this as referring to God? Let's, let's look at the other ways Elohim could be used and look for an alternate understanding. So that's why their translation of Hebrews shows up that way. Let's keep going real quick. Let me look at my time. About 30 minutes into the study, I think what I'll do is we'll break it off right here. We'll save this for next week. We'll start right here with the Jehovah's Witnesses version of Psalm 45, and we'll look at their, also their version of the book of Hebrews, their translation. And what we're going to find, I'll just kind of give you a little teaser. What we're going to find by examining the Jehovah's Witness version, the standard rabbinic Jewish version, these non-Christian versions. I say Jehovah's Witness non-Christian because, in my opinion, they're not truly Christian. Even though they embraced Christ, Jesus as the Christ, the rest of their theology is so questionable as to render that their uh, claims to be invalid. In other words, that th- this is a recognized by mainstream Christianity as a cult. But th- what we're going to find is that they decide to strip both the passage in the book of Psalms as well as the writer to the book of Hebrews. They strip it of the vocative as well. And because from their perspective, we know that they are like biblical Unitarian and that they create their own proprietary version of the Bible to suit their theology. What they do is they strip it of the vocative because in, in so doing, the vocative is kind of in your face and leaves open the possibility that the psalmist is referring to the human king as Elohim. And that entails the possibility that this Elohim is God. Even though there are other uses of the word Elohim in the Bible, it's too close to sounding like the Trinitarian model when you say, oh God. So they're going to opt for their own different translation, which we'll begin to look at next week. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. I bless your name. And I'm, 
I'm very excited about the studies that we're undertaking. I know the students are probably challenged a bit and perhaps maybe even not as interested, but I believe that what you've laid on my heart is what you want me to teach. And therefore I'm teaching to the best of my ability and to the best of my understanding of what you're asking me to teach. And so the two topics that we've been undergoing during these live studies, the eschatology study during the first hour and this Trinitarian versus Biblical Unitarian or uh, kind of what we might call apologetic study at the at the last 30 minutes. Lord, these are the topics you've laid on my heart for now. And so uh, bless those who are following the studies via YouTube, via iTunes, via the podcast, via my website, via my newsletters, via whatever uh, uh, blog or, or website that my studies get reproduced into. Uh, bless them where they're at. Help them to come to right decisions based on truth, based on their own research, based on the witness of the Holy Spirit within them. Help them to have eyes opened to the truth. Help us not to be blinded by error, which is why we're going through the trouble of going through the details of these particular topics uh, meticulously uh, to the best of my own abilities as a, as a Torah teacher. Thank you for the participation from the students. I pray that you'll continue to bless us, protect us, raise us up, and provide for us during these last days. And we'll be careful, Lord, as we count the Omer from Pesach to Pentecost to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Oh,